Hello, and welcome to the Home for Anime, Collector's Edition, a four-episode podcast series where I, Cameron Allison, take a look at different aspects of anime collecting, including archiving, materialism, platform ideologies, and fan studies. Today I am joined by Dr. Patrick Kielty, an associate professor in the Faculty of Information and Center for Sexual Diversity Studies at the University of Toronto. He is also the Archives Director of the Sexual Representation Collection administered by the Center of Sexual Diversity Studies, which actually feeds in quite well to today's conversation because you and I are going to be talking about archiving. So, Patrick, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me, Cameron. How are you? Oh, I am doing wonderful. It's cloudy outside and it's been raining. It's my favorite type of weather. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) So Patrick, I'm going to start this off by asking, what is archiving? Well, that's a big question. (laughs) Believe it or not, it's one that could get me into trouble if I don't answer it the right way. Um, So, I mean, I think for a lot of people, archiving is um really simply an accumulation of historical records but i actually think that that is a very limited understanding of what it is i think it's also a site for power for um, histories that get collected or absented um, for finding yourself in the past which can be really important for different groups of people Um, it can be a site for colonialism it can be a site for um, creative eruption. So I think it can be a lot of different things. And um, I don't think there's any one answer necessarily. Um, On the other hand, it's also associated with a profession um, called archivists. Mm -hmm. And that often entails certain kinds of professional training and professional standards and certain kinds of labor that take place traditionally within a certain kind of brick and mortar institution and a certain kind of filing system. But those institutions and filing systems um, all come with their own histories and legacies and often reflect people whose histories were recorded and um, they often reflect um, the kinds of um, organization of knowledge that is usually um, usually reflects the people who are in a position to know their own history or record and preserve their own history. So it's a contested site. And I think it's important to think with and against the archive um, and not to see it as necessarily a consolidation of historical record, but to see it as one form of evidence and a very partial one at that. That, you're right, that is that is a very loaded answer, and I love everything about it. <laughs> I am curious about how your studies relate to archiving and what your archive looks like, you know, in terms of what you do for the university. Sure. So, so I have two areas of research. One is more archival than the other. Mm-hmm. The first is studying... Um, 
uh, the politics of digital technologies in the sex industries, but the other is studying the materiality of media in erotic historiography. Mm-hmm. And it's that second one that's more closely aligned with archives. So I'm interested in how um, going back into the past and looking at sort of historical objects from the past um, can help you experience um, or give you a kind of portal into, especially in, in regards to like sex and sexuality, I'm interested in how pleasure can be a form of historical knowing. And I'm specifically interested in how sort of our interactions with older media can help us have a brief sort of glimpse into how pleasure was structured in an earlier moment. So you might think, for example, of um, vintage pornography, or you might think about old photographs that maybe give you some sense of desire or pleasure or excitement. I think there's a way that those older objects can serve as a way of relating to people in the past who maybe, um, you know, don't necessarily track with contemporary nomenclature or contemporary forms of social organization, um, ways of finding a kind of like queer history, even if the folks in the past might not have identified the way we do today. You know, that actually makes me wonder and I had a had a conversation with my advisor who is also a porn scholar, and he said this would be something to ask and to raise it very carefully. Sure. So the the media that you and I study, you you studying pornography and me studying anime, both are kind of upping in prominence, but at the same time, a lot of society has kind of branded both of them at one point as low media. Well, sure. So how does it feel to run an archive based off of something that some people would consider low media? Because, I mean, I know people who are collecting hentai tapes for, for pure pleasure and... Well, I have no problem with being called low culture, so... (laughs) Lovely. I embrace it. I embrace it. Um, yeah, I mean, the University of Toronto has um, an archive that is a sex work and adult film history archive. Mm-hmm. And um, it basically tracks histories of pleasure, histories of labor. Um, and uh, you're right that there's a certain kind of um, ascendance to pornography studies. It now has a journal. It is a scholarly interest group in a couple of different larger scholarly societies. Um, But there's still a lot of people, I think, who um, are fundamentally, they fundamentally misunderstand, I think, um, the people who work in the industry um, and um, the the sort of... um, both value and um, limitations of it as a media. And I think, um, and this is probably true of other forms of low culture, there's no monolith story to tell about um, who produces it, who consumes it, who's interested in it, that it's a wide variety of people. And um, they all come to it from different 
places and interests in life. And it's important to tell lots of different stories and rather than to tell a single monolith that it's usually a myth. So I don't know if that's helpful in, um, in, in your understanding of like consumptions of hentai or consumptions of anime. I believe so. Just from the perspective that you kind of get a, a little glimpse depending on how far and how deep you research into the history of, of anime and of hentai, which not a lot of people do. You, you don't get that monolith again, like what you were talking about. So you have these different people, these different groups who become interested over time, but you don't, you don't know where it began. You just know that once you get the media, you have to preserve it from anything from Astro Boy in the 1960s to Rosa Versailles to the in the 1970s to even Violet Evergarden from 2018. Mm-hmm. So you just have these different things that have to be preserved because somewhere out of the woodworks, new fans of anime are coming every day, just like new fans of pornography are coming every day. There's always someone who wants to study or someone who's discovering themselves. If, if I'm, if I'm correct, am I correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and the variety of anime I'm sure is, is huge. Right. And Mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, I think for a lot of people, it's a world that they don't know as a, a lot about. And, um, and sort of complicating dominant ideas or myths um, about these media cultures that I think is really important work. Mm-hmm. Well, I am actually curious. I did a little bit of peeking into what I could find of, of your archive, and I noticed that there were some, some prints, at least in some of the pictures that I saw. But is, is there room for physical media because in, in the world realm of archives, because I've noticed that a lot of them kind of have to be digitized in one way or another. Like uh, analog media has to be played once a year, but they won't let anyone check them out to watch. But then you have things like, and I checked this on the archive.gov site, you have different things like CDs, DVDs, and Blu-ray discs, and of course the analog media like VHS and Betamax, which are all collected. But is it really, is there really a place for it in the archive? Yeah, I, so, I mean, at the Sexual Representation Collection at the University of Toronto, we are more than happy to have people come in and watch analog the analog version of our media. But most people don't want to necessarily buy a plane ticket to come to Toronto just to see if something in our collection might be relevant to their research. (laughs) So being able to digitize it and send it to them through a sort of um, platform that the university runs that's behind a firewall 
um, so that, that we're not just giving, you know, we don't want, there are certain things that for copyright reasons can't just be made publicly available. Right. But, um, the ability to share things with scholars and, and these are real examples, Finland, Switzerland, um, the UK, um, Oregon, California, right? Um, North Carolina, for example. Yeah. Um, the ability to share um, our materials digitally means that you can cut down on the cost of research. It also means that if something did happen to the analog, we have some kind of copy of it. Now, the digital is not a replacement for the original. It's um, another iteration of it. But it's an incredibly valuable thing to have. And if digitization weren't so labor intensive and, and um, you know, expensive, we would digitize all of our collection. At the moment, we're only able to digitize the things that people ask us for. So it's kind of um, by request. Um, but if somebody has a project where it requires them to actually view a 16 millimeter film um, in its original format, we would be happy to accommodate that. Um, there's a, a real value uh, in the materiality of media and in viewing things in their original context, which again dovetails a bit with my um, second project where you try and, I mean, there's no way of completely recreating the way pleasure was experienced in the past, mm -hmm. but there are ways in which popping in a VHS tape and pressing play um, can really tell you how the kind of like temporal flows of pleasure function differently in VHS than they do online. Mm -hmm. Teaching undergraduate students how to rewind and fast forward and seeing the look on their face when they see how slow that process takes, I think is kind of evidence of the way in which pleasure was structured differently with different media formats. So yeah, I, but nevertheless, I think it's really important uh, for students to have that experience and to see that like a VHS tape afforded certain things that the digital doesn't and it um, limits you in other ways that the digital doesn't. And that that's part of the way that me, that pleasure um, gets structured differently in different media formats. So. Well, that brings me really, you are really good at this. Wow. <laughs> I, I like talking to you. The, the physical media, so things like, again, the Blu-rays, the DVDs, the analog, media especially blu-rays and dvds are a combination of physical and digital but everything all pieces of media are attached to a shelf life of course mm -hmm. not a shelf life that you and i will probably live to see in terms of dvds and blu-rays but say that you have anyone who collects hentai dvds or anyone who collects limited edition box sets or anything like that what would an archive be prepared to do in the future when that the, the shelf life is up on any of those like does yeah. it just become a box that sits there forever for people to say this was a thing 
So it's a great question. And you're basically asking about long-term preservation strategies. Mm -hmm. So the collection that I run um, really starts in 1907 and goes until the present. So we're actively looking at media formats that face deterioration and are already, um, we worry about playing them or we worry about their obsolescence. So first, if you are at an institution like I am that has money and facilities, then you can have things like cold storage, um, environmentally controlled facilities that are purpose built to keep different media formats to, to, to help them last for as long as possible in their original format. Um, but things like video games, sometimes you can preserve the game itself, like an old Nintendo video game, but the game player, the actual machine that you ran the game on might become obsolete. Um, again, there are, and the University of Toronto has this, there are libraries and archives out there that actually try to maintain those older formats. So if you go to the digital preservation unit of the University of Toronto Library's main library, um, there's a librarian there, Jess White, um, who actually helps to maintain these old computers, desktop computers, so that if you wanted to play a floppy disk from like the 80s, you, you know, the actual floppy ones, mm -hmm. um, you know, you could walk up to an Apple IIGS um, in, in their um, digital preservation space and actually play it in its original format. Now, again, there's a lot of folks who, who, you know, there's a lot of institutions that just don't have the resources to be able to have an advanced, you know, digital asset or, or um, preservation department like that. So, you know, what those same institutions, the ones that can afford it do is try and, um, again, copy the material onto another format that can last more than 50 or 100 years. So you might try and copy film video to magnetic tapes, playing them back is not going to have the same feel as playing a Nintendo game with its original console. But um, you'll be able to have some semblance of that experience, a kind of like simulation of it. And the idea is that perhaps one day technology would advance to the point where our simulations can get better and better. Um, but at least it's not entirely lost when it's copied to a magnetic strip. But yeah, I mean, it kind of depends on what archive you're talking about. Uh, if you're talking about a big fancy one like the Library of Congress, then um, they probably have the resources to do the kind of things that the University of Toronto's library is doing. But if we're talking about a community archive or someone's own private collection in their home without significant funding, uh, yeah, eventually those materials are going to deteriorate. And um, I'm not an archival glutton. I, I don't think that everything needs to be kept. <laughs> not everything can be kept. Some things right. are lost to history. It's not always the right things, <laughs> but some things are lost to history. And that's long been a part of the history of archives. And it's the history of memory we forget. We definitely forget things. Well, I'm glad that you brought up there being different types of archives because I found this article. And so the title of the article is 
Archival Knowledge in the Field of Personal Archiving, an Exploratory Study Based on Grounded Theory. And the quote that I wanted to pull up from there was, it is common practice for people to collect, organize, and maintain various documents and materials from their lives. In the archival community, personal archives are generally used to refer to these materials, specifically referring to documents created, acquired, or received by an individual in the course of his or her affairs and preserved in their original order, if such order exists. And personal archiving is the behavior of created, acquired, received, and maintained of these archives. However, PA, personal archive, practice has been complicated by the advent of the digital age. The increasing application mm. of electronic technology and the rise of the internet resulting in the accumulation of more personal digital archives, both on and offline. As a result, PA is no longer a matter of simply collecting, organizing, and maintaining materials. It is increasingly necessary to consider issues of classification, storage, migration, and backup to ensure the long-term and secure preservation of personal archives, as well as their easy retrieval and reuse. And the thing that I wanted to ask based on that is, is it totally right to call a personal collection an archive? Um, well, first I'll say I agree that um, it's becoming more and more challenging. I mean, at the archive I run, one of the donors of a large collection of films had this incredibly detailed, like really many decades of labor of love put into a FileMaker Pro, basically catalog database of his collection with incredibly detailed information that would be useful to a researcher. And the, the FileMaker Pro um, data is an artifact itself. It's an artifact about the donor and the history of collecting and the provenance of these of these items. How we go about preserving his FileMaker Pro database has really stumped us because it's a software that you have to subscribe to. It's no longer the kind of software that comes in a box, in a DVD, where once you've purchased it, you have access to that software. Now it's a cloud-based technology, kind of like Adobe. And if you don't keep subscribing year after year after year, you don't get access to the data he created. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to figure out how to do a long-term preservation of a FileMaker Pro um, data. But to answer your question, um, you know, I'm not, I, I don't regulate the boundaries around what is and isn't an archive, but there's a lot of people who do. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a purely opinion-based question. This is an yeah. exploration. We're not here to find out yes, yeah. no, what's totally right, what's totally wrong. Yeah, my opinion is great. Call it an archive. That's <laughs> fantastic. I mean, but I've heard people say, well, no, archives involve certain kinds of labor and that you're sort of, flattening all kinds of labor together um, by calling everything an archive. You know, I guess I'm just not a purist around <laughs> words. So uh, yeah, if you want to call it an archive or if you want to get away from that and call it a collection, that's great too. I mean, archive is also a politically charged term um, that can be often associated with forms of colonialism. Um, it can be associated with certain kinds of official knowledge 
official histories. So if you want your collection to be a counterpoint to traditional um, historical way of knowing, maybe you don't want to call it an archive. Um, so I think there's a lot of, I mean, I don't, I think everybody has their own reasons for calling a collection of materials what they do. Um, and since I think an archive is always more than just an accumulation of materials, I think it's a lot more active and dynamic than that. You know, for me, it's never just about a, one particular way of doing things. So. Right. So that, I, I would have to say I agree with you. I think ultimately it's up to the person who is or, or thinks that they are archiving. Yeah. Because yeah. there are some people who have thousands of tapes or thousands of DVDs and they can pronounce each and every one of them by heart, no matter how hard the name, no matter where it is in their collection, they can find it just like that. And they are willing to share their knowledge of what exactly is in any cinematic title period. Yeah. So I just think that having all of these different people who come together and collect and are willing to share. And I mean, there are people who, of course, burn discs and digitize it in that way. So it, it kind of is in the vein of someone who maybe leaves a video for their kid for like their birthday, if they know they're not going to be there, but maybe the, the hardware is outdated. So they put it on someone's computer, upload it and send it to them on say the 18th birthday. Congratulations. You're an adult. I'm so proud of who you've become. So yeah, yeah just these there, of course it's not as costly or as efficient probably as what happens in places like the University of Toronto, but ultimately you still have this data mm -hmm. that you can transfer over from one place to another to kind of keep that media alive always. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, um, like I said, I'm not really somebody who polices the boundaries, but there's right. a lot of people who have very firm ideas about what an archive is. Right. <laughs> so my next question is, what is the distinction between restoration and preservation? Because we talked about that a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think typically people think of restoration as somehow trying to maintain something about the original and try, trying to maintain either original format or the original viewing experience maybe. And I think restoration can sometimes be even an active um, intervention into the thing itself in order to bring, bring out some kind of original experience, mm -hmm. um, if that's even possible. So in the case of like a painting, you might know that that is supposed to be yellow and you might brighten that yellow, right? I think preservation is about um, preventing deterioration. So it's not necessarily about bringing out the yellow. It's about, you know, minimizing the extent to which that yellow deteriorates. Um, and I think there, 
you know, oftentimes they're done in conjunction. I know a lot of, you know, murals in buildings, like say in Italy, are restored and preserved. They keep the temperature at a certain level in the room. Um, they have a certain amount of air circulation in that room in order to prevent deterioration, but they also participate in restoration practices. Mm. So um, that's what I would imagine is the difference. I'm, maybe an art historian would feel differently and they're cringing listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> what spurred that question, there's this company in Florida called Discotech Media that I, I've spoken about on this podcast before. Discotech Media rescues licenses of older anime. Basically, they make it so that people can actually have access to things that they normally wouldn't be able to. So mm -hmm. things like Rosa Versailles, uh, the original Shaman King, and Appleseed. But they restore a lot of these different titles they touch up the colors they did this release of project Deco recently which is a film from the 80s and they just made it look similar yet somehow completely different and it just kind of made me think am i still watching project Deco? like am i watching the real project Deco, or is mm -hmm. this just a copy yeah. you know oh yeah i mean that happens in film all the time where you know, actually film historians can get really upset because restoration choices, you know, there will be, they are intellectual choices and there will be debates about whether or not um, a particular filmmaker would have wanted this done this way um, or even um, altering the way, you know, if it gets restored really well, it could be even a completely different viewing experience than the original. Um, and so, um, yeah, I know a lot of film uh, film historians who bemoan restoration practices. They feel the intellectual choices are wrong. Or um, I don't know. I mean, I have to say, I, I hear that argument. I also just, frankly, I love stumbling on these old moving images that have been restored I would say it's not about, in that case, um, returning to an original experience, but creating a new experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of am fascinated by like these moving images from the late 19th century or the Edwardian era. Um, I know there's a famous one that often circulates on the internet of a snowball fight um, somewhere in New England. And I'm totally fascinated by snowball fighting in like, you know, Victorian dresses. <laughs> it's just totally, I'm to completely captivated by it. And I think the image would be so fuzzy that you wouldn't have seen the details of the dresses in its original, you know, originally film was not a great, it was a pretty um, low quality media compared to today. Right. And I don't know that you would have necessarily seen all the details of these dresses, even in even contemporaneous to the film. Um, but seeing a restorationist come in and make choices about the details of these dresses enhances the experience. It's a different experience, to be sure. Mm -hmm. 
but it's also an experience that I find totally captivating, even if it's a kind of new iteration of an old media. So, As we've been talking, my perception of archives has changed exponentially, which... Oh, okay, great. <laughs> I, again, you are such an amazing scholar for doing that in less than 35 minutes. I originally would have thought, oh, well, if it's not the original original, then there's no way that we could say it's archived media. But at this point, what I'm thinking is, well, it exists. So if we can store it, then, and we can show it to people, then it deserves to be archived or it can, deserves to be considered as archival material, which going back a little while, it's physical media. Physical media is, in, is, is basically part of an archive or it should be archived. Oh, yeah. I mean, most archives are analog physical things. Um, most archives don't have the money to really digitize in any significant way their collections. I mean, even, even the collection I run is sort of piecemeal um, in what it, and then of course you need to put it onto a platform that is going to be accessible in the long term. We're using internet archive, but I don't know, that could go away tomorrow and all of our digitization labor, you know, it wouldn't be public facing anymore. Um, so, I mean, one of the challenges too, is not just digitizing, but then maintaining the data that you digitize. I mean, data doesn't just, um, it doesn't just, it, it's not something that, um, is just always accessible. The accessibility of data needs to be maintained. Data is a lot of work. <laughs> so, right. I'm. I'm very curious about this. As for personal archives, of course you have people who take pictures like that article that I uh, referenced said, but then you have people who are anime collectors and sometimes, yes, they get hand-me-downs from DVDs or VHS, but other times, most of the time actually, they have to pay for their collection. Is that something that's common among people who have to put things in archives? Um, so most archives get things through donation, um, thing, things that people give to them. And if it's somebody's private collection, yeah, it can be something that they purchased over decades, over their whole life. Um, and, and then the benefit goes to this institution. It's one reason why some people prefer to give to a community organization than to an institutional archive. But yeah, I mean, especially in the porn world um, where traditional libraries and archives don't collect erotic material, mm -hmm. um, historians are forced to go onto a fan market and purchase their primary source materials. And that means that the barrier to doing that kind of research is financially quite high. Um, and I mean, it's more than just flying to different archives, which is already expensive enough for your average historian. It is um, made more expensive because, right, you have to now also contend with this fan market. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons why the collection we run at UFT were really attuned to that, to the fact that adult film historians face 
extra financial barriers, and we're doing everything we can to bring those down. Digitizing things for free is one example. It helps save the money on plane tickets, and we don't charge them to digitize. So It's all worth it. So in my humble opinion, thanks to all of the talk that you and I have had through this entire conversation, anything can be an archive. And I can see why I can see why anyone would want to keep an archive. So for anime fans, anime scholars, porn fans, porn scholars, anyone who's into film, you, you just want that. You want that media. You want to be able to study it. You want to be able to enjoy it. So if you keep it, if it's in your collection, if it's in your archive, it is definitively yours until, you know, the, the day you move on. Yeah. Yeah. So, thank you so much, Cameron. This has been great. Yes. Thank you so much, Patrick. I really, really appreciate you coming on and talking with me. Well, it's my pleasure. Really, it was my pleasure. And um, yeah, best of luck with your anime archive. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, best of luck with uh, school and everything. Thank you so much. Tell Don Stadler I said hi. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Okay, Again, great. Dr. Patrick Kilty is a professor at the University of Toronto. And if you have the honor of going to the University of Toronto to see his archive, I would heavily recommend doing so. Hopefully I can make the trip up there one day myself. That'd be great. This has been another episode of the Home for Anime Collector's Edition. I have been your host, Cameron Allison, and thank you for listening.